Will you join me as we pray together? We have prayed already, Father, in the songs that we've just sung. We've given you our life as an offering. We've asked you to be our vision. We've made some affirmations about how your vision of you is more important to us than many other things. But Father, we know that unless you keep on opening our eyes to see you more clearly, those things will just remain affirmations that we might do once every two or three weeks. But it doesn't affect the way we live and think and feel. And so we bow before you again and ask you, Lord, to reveal yourself to us. And that's something only you can do by your spirit. We cannot command you. We cannot dictate the manner, the time or the occasion. But we can ask you. You have told us that knocking and seeking and asking are bring um, satisfy you and is pleasing to you, Father. And that you will answer us when we knock, seek and op- ask you to open to us. Open also our ears now that we may specifically hear this particular way in which you reveal to us as you speak your living word to us. You have said to us in your word that your words are not a trifle, but your words are life. And then you ask us to choose life, Father. And so, whatever you said before us today, will you also so persuade us of the truth and of the beauty of those words that we will in fact choose to respond. In Jesus' name. Amen. Almost 50 years ago, In a church in Calgary, a young man got up and he had been given about four minutes or so in the service to share his dream and his vision, which was to go to India as a missionary. And he needed some money to enable him to do that. The immediate response was quite discouraging. But fairly quickly after that, I cannot remember the details, perhaps even later on the same day, certainly within a very short time, a young woman came to him and said, Sir, uh, My name is so-and-so, I have recently been widowed, tragically, and I have five young children. And and, and my husband left me, the will left me $2,000. But I think you really need that more than I do. I am prepared to trust God to look after me and my kids. But here, take this money. And that money, along with other things, enabled this man to end up in India, first in uh, Bombay and then in the city of New Delhi where he served as Vice President of Asia Youth for Christ for many years. It was in his home, and largely influenced by the power of this man's example, the two young men who had not yet even turned 18 came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. One of them you know is my brother-in-law, Ravi Zacharias, who has a worldwide ministry today, uh, impacting the cultural gatekeepers and opinion and movers and shakers of society in various parts of the world. The other young man is standing before you right now. Did that woman have any idea of what that $2,000 sacrificial investment in Jesus' cause was going to count as far as the world was concerned? Actually, it occurred to me this morning, it was January the 11th, 41 years ago, that evening that I gave my life to Christ. Probably almost exactly to the time because it was 7.30 at night then. From a human perspective, I owe a huge amount of my conversion and subsequent growth to that unbelievably sacrificial gift of that woman, whom I will never meet this side of eternity, who probably doesn't have the faintest clue of what God did with that gift. Therefore, you see, it is impossible for me to speak about our part in God's global agenda without speaking about the issue of giving sacrificially as well. Yes, our first response to God's call to participate in His global agenda was to pray. And we looked, looked at that for the last two weekends. Both fullness, fullness prayers and fulfillment prayers. And we spent a whole week praying. And just a wonderful solemn assembly. Probably one of the best 
that we've ever had. But today I want to talk about that second dimension of participating in God's agenda by concrete acts of giving of our resources to Him. And there are two passages or two verse, uh, chapters in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, that perhaps form the, the best concentrated teaching on the subject. It's taught all over the world, but these two chapters together, and we actually extracted them for you, uh, and you might have, some, of them, some of you might have already read them as well. But if you don't have your Bibles, you'll have access to that to mark any specific things that God has to say to you. <clears throat> now, uh, I know that you have all been very faithful this past year in giving, but I really believe that God is calling us to stretch ourselves in this area. And so, before we look at this chapter and how are the dimensions of stretch, as I've called it, let me first of all talk to you about why, why I think we need to stretch this coming year as we continue to cooperate with God. Uh, this, this is the offering envelope that about 900 people or couples in this church use. You need to have some idea of how the money goes and what it does and therefore why we need to stretch. Whatever you give to the general fund uh, goes to such things as uh, staffing and um, looking after the facilities and financing all of the ministries of this church. Uh, whatever you give to the missions fund, if it's not specifically designated, 60% of that goes to Global Advance, which along with what the other Alliance churches in Canada give, uh, finances the 295 or 300 missionaries that we have, people like uh, Dave and Nancy Pett, for example. 25% of that goes to Canadian ministries, which finances church plants here at home, the multicultural and ethnic ministries and churches that when they start up don't have a lot of resources. And 15% of that goes to what we call RAC missions. What is that? There are several people associated with our church that God raises up and calls to serve in God's greater uh, mission, but who are not part of the alliance. Scott and Laura Lee McLean, for example, uh, uh, served with the Emmanuel International in Malawi. And we also, uh, the elders board interviews these people and decides to support some of them. Uh, but typically we find that over a year, we give out over $45,000 more than what comes in as far as the Rexdale Alliance Church Missions is concerned. Guess where that comes from? That has to come from the general fund. And this at a time when the general fund is also going to be needing increases next year because God, we believe, has called us to plant a church in Vaughan. And a significant amount of the budget increase for the coming year, which is approximately 10% over last year, uh, is, is because of the startup costs associated with this and, and the uh, uh, pastoral position that we will now permanently have because once Vaughan church is planted, we're going to plant another church. And so all of that requires an increase in the general fund as well. So this coming year, we're going to need to stretch ourselves in the general fund, in the missions fund, and specifically in the RAC missions part of it as well. Simply moving the giving from one area to the other doesn't really solve the overall problem. And by the way, for those of you who don't like to work around with percentages, you can just simply put it as use where needed and let somebody else figure out all the details for you. In fact, in the book of Acts, that's basically how they started out doing. So that, that's sort of why we need to stretch this coming year. Uh, there's another dimension where stretching is important. Right at the beginning of the missions dimensions of the early church, Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 says, James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So right at the beginning when mission strategy was being developed in the early church and the 
Jewish mission and the Gentile mission was being strategized, both groups said we've got to remember the poor. And so we do that in our church regularly. And there are three occasions during the year where we highlight an opportunity to invest in the poor in the bigger parts of the world. Uh, the 30-hour famine in April, world relief in October, and the Christmas shoeboxes in November or December. Again, you have been very faithful over the years, but I was looking at some trends. Here are the trends over the last four years for the 30-hour famine giving. 100,000, 65,000, 38,000, and 25,000. So we've definitely been coming down. Same trend when it comes to world relief. 10,000, 5,500, 5,300, and just under 2,000. Now I'm quite aware of the fact that some of you give directly to these organizations and all the money doesn't go through our books. But trends do signify something. And so evidently this is a second area in which we need to stretch ourselves. There's a third dimension to this stretch. Now nobody knows in this church how what any particular individual gives. And that's the way it should be and will be. Apart from the person who gives you your income tax receipt at the end of the year, and that person changes every two or three years. And that way, your giving is totally, totally confidential. However, statistically, we can look at some tens, and here are some things that we see. Approximately 20, 900 people, as I said, use the envelopes. Approximately 20% of the people give about 70% of the total income to this church, which is fine. Those who have more are expected to give more, as you will see in a minute. It's the stretch at the other end I want to talk about. About 30% of our people give about 2% of the total. In numbers, it's approximately 280 people who give about $100 a year on average. That's, that's $2 a week, just a little bit more than a medium cup of coffee at, at Timothy's per week. Now again, I'm quite aware of the fact that some of these people in this category may be pouring thousands of dollars into Christ's kingdom in other places. And that's fine too. But I do need to point out, if you are in this category, there is one thing that scripture does seek. And that is, to the extent that you are being fed by the local church that you are choosing to attend and prospering in, to that extent, a reasonable amount of your giving belongs to that local church. Here are a couple of verses you might want to think about. 1 Corinthians 9, 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And Galatians 6.6, 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share, notice the word, must share all good things. And the phrase all good things specifically refers to concrete financial things with his instructor. And this is not so much me as an individual. You, you take very good care of us as a staff. But collectively, if you are being fed in this church, some amount, reasonable amount of your giving, wherever else you give to, needs to belong to the church. So those are three dimensions of the stretch that I think... Uh, I see before us this coming year. Okay, with that behind us, let's take a look from these scriptures uh, of the three dimensions of, the, of uh, how this stretching is going to happen. First of all, where does the muscle power for this stretch come from? I remember reading about um, circus act. Uh, they had a strong man act at the end. And this strong man right near the end would just take a, an orange or an apple or some fruit and he would kind of extend his hand like this where everybody could see and would just slowly squeeze that fruit until every last drop had come out of it. And then they would issue a challenge to the whole uh, audience and say, okay, has anyone come up right now? And can you squeeze a few more drops out of this? Of course, no one accepted the challenge. But one day, to everybody's surprise, a rather dapper old gentleman, tiny guy, dressed in a gray suit, white hair, made his way up and he said, I'm going to challenge. And so he, while everybody was in absolute silence, he takes this stuff, and he squeezes it, and amazingly, four more drops of juice come out, you know. And everybody bursts out in applause, and the MC jumps onto the stage with his mic and says, Sir, what is the secret of your great strength? He said, no problem, I'm the treasurer of the local church. 
<laughs> you see, that's most people's idea of how the church raises money. Squeeze a few more reluctant dollars out of equally reluctant hearts. Well, God and the Bible and Paul and Corinthians knows absolutely nothing of that kind of motivation. The muscle power for stretch does not come from things like that. Look at what Paul opens in this chapter. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The word grace is repeated throughout. The muscle power for the stretch that I'm asking you to do together this coming year is going to come from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Macedonians, he points out the situation with the Macedonians. And if you want to get a picture of the, of the kind of uh, um, heart that these people seem to have, you need to imagine something like this. Let's imagine that our service is over and I'm coming right to the end and I'm about to pronounce the benediction when a group of people jump up and say, Pastor, can you please call the ushers back? Well, we've already had the offering. Yeah, I know. But you know what? While, we, the, while the service has been going on, we've been dreaming up five or six more ways in which we can give money. Well, I've thought of three more places where I can get some more money and we want to give that. So please bring the people back. Don't deprive us of this a wonderful privilege. We, we'd fall drop dead probably out of surprise if something like that happened. That's the sort of thing Paul says they were doing. They were pleading beyond their ability for the privilege to give. Now, as I was looking at this text, it struck me that he wasn't really using the Macedonians just as an example. They did this, you do it. Because often pride will respond to a call like that. <laughs> One pastor I read about had devised a foolproof method of raising large amounts of money. He would get on the phone, get to some of the big givers that he knew in the church, and he would persuade one of them to get on board and get an amount, and he would get his permission to publish it. He said, once I got that first name and the amount on the paper, the battle was won. Now there were all kinds of other people who didn't want to be outdone, you see. And so they put their names on and gave even more. That's pride. That's not why he's pointing out to the Macedonians. Now later on in verse 9 we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So is he using Jesus as an example? Not really. If using human beings as an example produces either bitterness or pride, using Jesus as an example produces discouragement. Because who's going to do what Jesus did? And then it suddenly struck me. He is using neither the Macedonians as an example, nor is he using Jesus as an example. What he is doing is using the Macedonians as an illustration of the power of Jesus' grace to so touch ordinary people that they can do extraordinary things. So the issue is not look at the Macedonians and say, wow, what generous people, but to look at Jesus and say, wow, what an awesome Savior that can make ordinary people do extraordinary things. And then it begins to make sense. It's that kind of grace that's going to motivate you and me. 
And then Paul goes on to say to, the, um, to these people, you have excelled, you have excelled in so many other things, in faith, speech, knowledge. I already see so many evidences of grace in your life. So come on, excel in this grace. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do what the Macedonians did. Give yourself to Jesus first. And so we're going to stretch, folks. We need to do exactly the same thing. We need to go to Jesus. And what does that mean, though? Those are all nice words. What does it mean in practice? At least two dimensions, I think, are important. First of all, we need to go to Jesus in repentance. Repentance? You say, why repentance? Uh, take a look at these statistics of giving. from uh, This is United States statistics in 1998, but Stats Canada shows exactly the same kind of results. The wealthier we are, the less we seem to give. Those who earned an income between 0 and $10,000 a year gave 5% of their income away to charity. That's probably a sacrificial amount. Those who earned between 10000 and 20000 gave 3.2%. Those who earned between 75000 and 100000 gave 1.6%. It seems that the more we have, the bigger the grip it gets on us and the harder it seems to be able to part with. And to the extent that our hearts are touched by something like that, we need to repent. This stuff is all in your study guide. You can pick it up. But here's a repentance prayer that I'd like you to pray with me today. Let's pray together. Father, we want to know you, but our coward heart fears to give up its toys. We cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And we do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. We come trembling, but we do come. Please root from our heart all those things which we have cherished so long and which have become a very part of our living selves so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then you will make the place of your feet glorious. Then our hearts will have no need of the sun to shine in it for you will be the light of it and there will be no night there. In Jesus' name, Amen. Something like that is a prayer I pray regularly before God. In fact, I memorize that particular prayer from Dr. Tozer. Repentance praying, as we've learned, also needs to be followed and makes the way for prayers of awakening and revival. And so here's the second prayer, which is also in your study guide, where we give ourselves to Christ, not in repentance, but we give ourselves to Him for further awakening as well. So let's pray this one together. God, help us to hold loosely the things of this earth, not carelessly, That would not do, because all that has been entrusted to us is from you. But since we are a people with tendencies towards things, they sometimes grow to monsters that overpower us. Help us to see them not as our possessions, but rather as instruments placed in our hands for your purposes. Give us wisdom to release them to your will, to hold them only long enough to hear your voice direct us never clutching them as something to simply hold dear. If by your grace it can be, then some values may be realized which we can't see nor comprehend, but they will stretch on and on through time, yea, till eternity. That can make us and also those who follow us in truth and joy truly free. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, when I read those words, then some values may be released that we cannot see or comprehend. I thought of that woman in Calgary again, you know. Did she have any idea of what she was releasing when she gave like that? So there's the muscle power. The muscle power for the stretching that is before us comes from the magnificent grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that allows us to both repent and cry out for prayers of awakening. Now, what about the measure of our stretch? We get an idea where the power comes from, but how much are we going to stretch? Okay? 
Where does that measure come from? Now, you, typically, when you and I think of the measure of stretching when it comes to money, we usually think of amount first. And we'll get there. But Paul doesn't start with amount. <laughs> Paul starts with attitude before amount. Several, several times in these two chapters. First of all, remember chapter 8, verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. Paul's first issue is, how sincere am I in my love when it comes to my giving? A story is told of a little girl who during an offering in church for a special occasion, kind of, she had, a, she had a difficulty walking and she, she made her way up to the front in, in uh, crutches. And she took off a little ring that she had and she dropped it into the offering plate. And the minister was there, saw this all. Later on, the minister went to visit that little girl and said to her that he had noticed what she had done and she, he commended her for it. But he said to her, we've got enough money to meet all our needs, so here is the ring back. And the little girl looked at him straight in the eye and said, but I didn't give it to you. What a beautiful little picture. True or not, what is a beautiful little picture of the sincerity of Allah. Who are you giving it to? To Rexel Alliance Church? Please don't. But if you think those causes for which we are asking you to stretch are in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, then give it to Him. Okay? That's the first thing Paul wants to test. Then he tests willingness. 8 chapter 11 verse 12. Now finish the work, he says to the Corinthians, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. The corollary is inescapable. If the willingness is not there, the gift is not acceptable. And then in chapter 9, he says, each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Again, implying that if the giving is reluctant and is being under compulsion, it's not acceptable. So can I say something to you in the authority of the word of God? If you cannot give this year, stretching or no stretching, if you're going to give with reluctance, if you're going to give with a joyless, grudging heart under compulsion, don't do it. It may cause some headache tensions for us, but at least you will not be insulting God. Because your gift is not acceptable. And my concern is not that this church doesn't have to struggle financially. My concern is that your worship be acceptable to God. Because that's how I can worship Him. And so please, whatever you give, make sure you're doing it cheerfully and gladly unto God. So, He tests the sincerity of our love. He tests the willingness and the fact that it needs to be cheerful. So, attitude before amount, a willing, cheerful heart is critical. Now, He does get to the amount part of it as well. In chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, twice he says, let it give according to your means. Give according to what one has. What does that mean? It means proportional, not percentage giving. So usually when we think of amount, when we think of stretch, we think of amount. When we think of amount, we usually think 10%. Paul doesn't mention percentages here at all. He says, let it be according to your means. And earlier on in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he had told them, do it in keeping with your income. Are proportional to your income. It needs to be the opposite of what we saw from Statistics Canada. The greater our income, the larger the percentage of it needs to be released for the king. Now, this is important for two reasons. First of all, first of all, it is important to move us from legalism to genuine holiness. Because you see, for many people, they can give 10% of their income away and the remaining 90% is still large enough that you can indulge every material desire that you have and it doesn't even come close to touching the materialism that is in our heart. Therefore, therefore, one of the reasons why God gives the command to proportional giving is that it will make sure that the more God blesses us, we are honestly dealing with the issue of materialism, that we are giving enough away that we are actually dealing with the problem of materialism. Secondly, and I think this is even more important, a flat percentage giving 
does not require you to anguish. How long does it take to decide to give 10%? I mean, I mean, once you've decided to give at all, it doesn't take you long. You just need to be able to multiply by 0.1 and you know how to give 10%. But to decide in your own heart, that's much more anguishing. So that means you've got to go to God. You've got to anguish with all this. And I'll show you in a minute what, how you do that. It takes a lot more effort and it drives you to Jesus, which by the way is the point of all the commandments of God. So you see, a flat percentage giving neither hits the issue of materialism, nor does it force you to go to God which, and deepen the relationship, which is the opposite of legalism. But proportional giving both makes you face the problem of materialism in your heart and it also drives you to Jesus to talk to him and worship him and repent before him and ask him for awakening and ask him to help you with all this. Which is the whole important thing. That's why it's so important to give proportion. <clears throat> then a third dimension of our stretch. Attitude before amount. Proportional giving rather than percentage giving. And thirdly he says our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed. But that there might be equality. At the present time your plenty will supply what they need. So that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. And so I would call this a measure of, third measure of stretching is equality. Then there will be equality, he says that twice. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little. Where is this written? <laughs> this is written in the book of Exodus when the people were gathering manna, when God supplied manna for them every day. And he said to them, gather what you need. So some people gathered a lot, some people gathered a little. Those who gathered a lot didn't have any left over. Those who gathered a little didn't have any need. But there were always, of course, a few entrepreneurs who want to test God. And so there were some of them who said, let's see what happens if we gather more. And you know what happened to the manna the next morning, it bred worms. Except, except when they gathered twice as much as they needed for the Sabbath. And then the extra did not breed worms. So when God tells you to store up things, it's okay. When you store it up, it might breed worms. That's the whole point of the thing. Paul, Paul is not suddenly becoming a communist, you know. Where he says everybody has got to have the same thing. So, so that all of you who work hard and invest hard and, and what not just need to dump everything away. That's not what he's talking about. But he, what he is saying though, what he is saying though, the abundance that God gives us is, is, is to meet needs. And if you're keeping some stuff for yourself that you do not need and you're neither giving away, make absolutely certain that it's not manna that's going to breed worms. Which means again, you've got to go to God. Which means again, you have to talk to him. Which means again, to allow him to direct your hearts. I am neither allowed to nor able to tell you what to do in terms of amounts. But I am commanded to tell you how to think about these things. And when it comes to the breeding of worms, really what I think is it, it, it's uh, this stuff that we store up. If we have not sought God and felt a sense of his blessing on the amount ejected, it loses its capacity to satisfy us. That's the whole point of it. Whether it comes in a literal crash on the stock market or what's even worse, it's all there and you still don't have any satisfaction. Randy Alcorn, the pastor who wrote Deadline and other such books, tells the story. Back when I was a pastor of a large church making a good salary and earning book royalties, the material possessions I valued most were my books. My money went towards many great books, thousands of them. Those books meant a lot to me. I loaned them out, but it troubled me when they weren't returned or came back looking shabby. Then I started to sense God's leading to hand over the books. See, the manna was now being distributed. All of them to begin a church library. I started looking at the names of those who checked them out. Sometimes dozens of names per book. I realized that by releasing the books I had invested in others' lives, suddenly the more worn out the book, the more delighted I was. My perspective was totally changed. 
God was teaching me a key to understanding the treasure principle. God owns everything. I am his money manager. And last night Miriam Charter was here and when I shared the story, she said, Sundar, when I came back from Russia, I couldn't bring all my theological books back. It was going to cost too much. She said, I could have given everything away, but I resented having to leave all those books. She said, but I packed them all up and took them to Lampado's Bible College. She said, but when I saw the eyes of the students as they unpacked these books, she said, all the resentment just disappeared. See, uh, what if she had hoarded those books? They breed manna, manna breeds worms. So those are the things that Paul is talking about here. <clears throat> By the way, this is what it means to decide in your heart. <laughs> when, when it says that, let each person give as they decide in their heart. It means you do the hard work <laughs> of checking your attitude. Is it willing? Is it cheerful? Is it sincere? Or am I giving reluctantly out of compulsion? Check the amount. Is it proportional? Or is it just a flat percentage? If my income is higher this year than last year, am I giving a higher percentage of it away? Is this process driving me to God? And then where there is abundance, is the abundance that I'm storing blessing or is it breeding worms? So attitude, amount and abundance are things that you need to decide in your heart. And one of the ways Sham and I do it, I guess I do it and then we talk about it because I'm the one with the head for numbers and she's not interested in that. So I do the numbers and we sit down and talk. One of the ways we do it is we, we keep track of what we spend and at the end of the year we... I look at what we've spent in these four areas. Living, which is the food, shelter, clothes. I mean, I'm talking now about a sense of like groceries and stuff like that. Then giving, which is easy. Saving, whatever we keep that we don't give away. And celebrating. Celebrating is everything that we don't really need, but we do to have fun. Uh, whether it's buying a television set or whether it's uh, going on a vacation. All of that is in the celebrating dimension. And so you look at the living, giving, saving and celebrating components. And I take a look at it and say, is the percentage of my giving in keeping with my income? How's my saving compared to my giving? How's my celebrating compared to my giving? See, this is all how you decide within your heart. Uh, not this way, what this guy did. How much should I give? I think I'll give $23.81.23 today. That's what some people think deciding in your heart is. Kind of wait until a number pops up into your head. No, no, no. That Again, that doesn't foster relationships and it doesn't touch materialism. Deciding in your heart is to check your attitude, check your amount, check your abundance, and check the proportions. And then do it freely, and then do it joyfully. As you've decided, let nobody tell you what to do. What not. That's why you've never heard from this pulpit ever in 24 years that you should give this much money, and you won't hear it. That's for you to decide. But I will insist and tell you that this is the process that you need to follow. That takes you to God, and then you and He can live and give joyfully and give cheerfully. Okay, very quickly, the motive, if the muscle power for stretch is the grace of God, if the measure of stretch is uh, attitude, proportional giving, and manner that doesn't breed worms, what about the motive for stretch? Paul tells us, first of all, it is what God does in us. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed <coughs> to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase the store of your seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So the first motive for stretch is what God does in us. Because as I've told you many, many times, worship 
of any kind and giving is one kind of worship. It's not because God needs it. He said the cattle and the thousand hills are mine and the wealth of every mine. If I were hungry, you think I'll talk to you? <laughs> That's what God said. He's very sarcastic when it comes to things like that. He doesn't need one penny. So why does he ask us to give? Because some things will happen in us. And there are three things that Paul says you can be assured of. He said, first of all, he said, having all that you need. First of all, the first thing he promises us is material, not material abundance. Notice, there is no health, wealth and prosperity gospel here. He says, I promise you that you will have what you need. In other words, as Stuart Briscoe once put it, what God promises us that when we give for his kingdom, we will never suffer because we've given. There may be other reasons why we suffer, but we won't suffer because of that. Uh, Fred Smith, a, Chris, a Christian businessman who was a millionaire in Dallas a few years ago, lost a whole lot of money. And someone came to him and said, look, do you now regret everything that you gave away? He said, are you kidding? That's the only stuff I didn't lose. The only stuff he didn't lose was the stuff he didn't give away, that he gave away. And so God promises you'll have everything you need. Now, while he promises material sufficiency, he promises spiritual abundance. He says he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. We do not see, brothers and sisters, the intimate connection in scripture between how we handle money and our spiritual health. That's why Jesus spoke so much about money. He spoke far more about money and wealth and possessions than he did about faith and prayer. That's why he elevated that one thing to the status of a rival God and said you cannot serve God and money at the same time. Money matters are deeply spiritual matters. And if some of us are having major problems, not all of us, if some of us are having major problems in our spiritual lives, we may need to take a look at how we are handling the material resources in these, along these principles that I've shared with you. So material sufficiency, spiritual abundance and multiplied resources for ministry. Look what he says. He will also increase your store of seed. Materially, he will be sufficient. Spiritually, there will be an abundant harvest and freedom in our lives. And guess what? He will multiply our ability to give. And for some people whose spiritual gift is giving, this becomes a huge component of this. People who give away 70, 80, 90 percent of their income in some cases. And there are people like that, to whom God has given the gift of giving and the ability to multiply seed as well. So that's what happens in us. That's the first motive. The second motive... This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God. And so, worship, prayer and thanksgiving from those to whom we give will rise up. Even though they may not know us. Remember, those kids get those Christmas boxes, you know. And some of them thank. They don't know who sent it. But God is being praised. And that's the whole purpose, isn't it? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and to worship Him. So our giving results in human beings doing what they were meant to do, which is to glorify God. And therefore our giving becomes worship. Not only that, he says, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out. They pray for us. And boy, would you rather have a third world suffering Christian praying for you or me, someone next to us? You know why? It's, something, it's not, not because they're any better than us, but the Bible tells us the poor of this world are rich in faith. And prayers need to be prayed in faith. I remember some of you know Esteban and Lila Guerra when they were here. Didn't have much by way of this world's resources. Lived in Tandridge area. Many people in Tandridge were mentioning the name of Jesus because Esteban and Lila. Well, they moved on down south of the border and after studying in the Rio Grande Bible Institute, they were ministering someplace north of Atlanta. And one, on one of our trips to visit my brother-in-law there, Sham and I decided we to drop in and visit Esteban and Lita because, you know, we figured we could encourage them. Of course, we got it all wrong, right? <laughs> because when we were driving away from there, we said to each other, man alive, weren't we encouraged? 
to see this couple living in simplicity with five children, very little of their world's resources, and yet so rich in faith. Story after story after story of faith and, and what was being accomplished. And we got encouraged. And so I'd rather have somebody with the gift of faith praying for me. That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> uh, the motive for stretch. What he does in your lives and what he does in others. Overflowing praise to God and their prayers for you and me, which we desperately need in this country. And it all finishes by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable. Living this way when it comes to our finances is not a burden but it's an invitation to an adventure with God. So, uh, however you felt at the beginning when I said, hey, this is the year we need to stretch, I hope you have a totally different perspective on it now. Stretch, yes, but it's also a year for adventure. To see an adventure with God in an area that perhaps you've not yet explored as much or can enter into. The muscle power for a stretch is God's grace. The measure of a stretch, attitude before amount, proportional not percentage giving, Equality in the light of need. And the motive for stretch is God's glory. And all of that in contrast. Here are some next steps for you. Okay, And with that, the worship team will come back and lead us in a couple of songs where we immediately focus our attention and give ourselves back to Jesus again. Number one, study guide. And by the way, this study guide I've done slightly differently. I've simply reproduced the structure of this sermon. And we've manufactured three examples. Like Harvard does case studies. got three studies. And there are some imaginary names but I forgot to put it in writing. I should have done so. Please... Any resemblance to any actual people living is totally accidental, wasn't intended. But they are hypothetical but realistic scenarios. So take a look at those three scenarios and, how, and if they were coming to you for financial advice, how would you advise them? And the reason for these case studies is that you'll then be able to apply it to your own situation a little bit easier. So do the case studies. Secondly, stewardship booklet. Some of you have been coming to the church for the last few months. Uh, I've only, there's probably some questions that have come to your mind based on what I've said. Well, there's a little booklet, yellow booklet with five sermons that amplifies much of what I've said in much greater length. If you don't have the booklet or you misplaced yours, pick one up and read through that. And then please decide in your heart the way I've told you. Decide in your heart this way, not this way. Okay? And then let's see what God does next year by this time. So as the worship team comes right now, let's uh, give ourselves again to Jesus in the light of what we've heard. Two women were once having a conversation. One of them was complaining to the other that her church was always asking for money and that it cost her too much. Her friend replied by telling her a story. Some time ago, a little boy was born in our home. He cost a lot of money from the very beginning. He had a big appetite. He needed clothes, medicine, toys and even a puppy. Then he went to school and that cost a lot more. Later he went to college and the cost went up. Then he began dating. That cost a small fortune. But in his senior year at college, he died. And since the funeral, he hasn't cost us a penny. As long as this church is alive, it will cost. When it dies for want of support, it will cost us absolutely nothing. May God give you this coming year uh, just a magnificent desire to see this church more alive that has ever been alive already. We thank God for the abundant demonstrations of His grace. And because we are alive, we want to just become even more alive this coming year. Go in Jesus' name.